The world is in a climate crisis and all industries must do their part to reach zero emissions. Maritime trade is critical to today's society, but is also responsible for 2.8% of all greenhouse gases. A future where global trade reaches zero is possible, but how do we actually get there? I'm Laura Jacobson, Zero North's chief purpose activist and an expert in sustainable shipping. In Navigating Zero, I'm sitting down with thought leaders to explore the inner workings of global trade, its massive impact on our society, and the obstacles it faces in navigating its way to zero. In 2020, the IMO's data collection system, DCS, indicated that carbon-based conventional fuels made up 99.91% of all maritime use, this piece of data highlighted just how far we have to go on our journey to truly decarbonize. To get to zero, critical changes in fuels are necessary. Biofuels, ammonia, methanol, it's a new frontier where progressiveness, risk management, and investments are needed. New technologies as well as innovation and risk taking are part of the actions that can affect change. To learn more about future fuels, today I welcome my guest, Lin Liu, CEO of the Global Center for Maritime Decarbonization. For the past two years, she's been heading up GCMD, but also holds her position at Princeton University as a professor of chemical and biological engineering. Before GCMD, Lin was the director of the Andelinger Center for Energy and the Environment, where she commissioned the Rapid Switch Initiative and the Net Zero America Study, which has actively influenced key decision makers globally, including the Biden administration. Lynn has experienced a difference in the way that she's collaborating through GCMD with the academic rigor of her background together with industry collaboration, which is quite different from her experience at Princeton. It's taken on a slightly different flavor at the Global Center for Maritime Decarbonization. But at Princeton, it was mostly my drive for doing that was to bring industry partners with academics together, right? Because I think in academia, we think about discovery and we're rigorous about the scientific discoveries that we're doing or about the, the kinds of experimentation that we're working on. Not so rigorous about the timeline, but more rigorous about getting things right. And so working with industry, it gives us a sense of what's important, what are the bottlenecks that would take to get to commercialization, and then the urgency of things, right? And so marrying the industrial relevance with academic rigor, I think, brings you to a balance point that's really important. And this is something that I think students who are just working in academia may not get completely from faculty members who have not spent time in industry alone. So it adds a different dimension, a different perspective. It adds richness to a student's experience being on campus. So I thought that was really important. And that's why I founded eFiliates. At GCMD, partnerships equally important, if not more, for different reasons. Shipping is a global industry. It's um, integral part of the global supply chain. And so there are many, many players that can affect 
the decarbonization journey for international shipping. And so it's really important to bring all these players together because they all play an important role in how fast we can move when we think about the fuel transition. So it's not just the fuel suppliers, right? It's the fuel producers. And we frequently don't think about the fuel producers because that's outside the shipping sector. But it's also the financiers, it's the insurers, it's the regulators, it's the policymakers, it's the cargo owners, right? So all these stakeholders have a role to play, and it's really bringing them around the table that we can move together and move faster. Can you tell me a little bit about the current green fuels that are available in the market and maybe take us through the availability or the journey that you see us taking on that? I think to different people, green means different things. So I'm going to take green when you're referring to green here, to mean anything that has a lower carbon intensity than the conventional fossil fuels that we use today. Because zero carbon green fuels are not available today. So with that as a caveat, I think what's available today would be biofuels, right? And biofuels are increasingly being tested, being used. The challenge there is, of course, scale in terms of availability and cost. I think there's no question at this point that biofuels can be a good drop-in fuels. And whether ship owners and ship charters and ship operators use it depends on who is going to pay for that green fuel premium. Besides a cost that's associated with these kinds of fuels, when we spoke with 100, 150 stakeholders and we interviewed them to understand the pain points of why they haven't adopted biofuels, repeatedly what we've heard is that the supply chain is not transparent. As in, when the biofuel is made and it comes down that supply chain, it changes hands many times. There may be a certificate that accompanies it, but that certificate comes very, very much upstream. And then in the interim, as it comes down that supply chain, there could potentially be interventions or contamination. So then by the time it gets to the fuel purchaser, whether you have confidence of where your fuel came from, whether something's been mixed into it, etc., you don't know anymore. So that's why we put together this pilot with 14 vessels bunkering biofuels, drop-in biofuels and biofuels blend in two different ports. The focus, again, is not on whether we can combust and use biofuels for propulsion. The focus is more on the supply chain, ironing out the supply chain. And so what we've done is we've put in tracers upstream where the biofuels are produced, and then we can follow it as it comes down that supply chain. So we can have certainty on the quantity, the quality, and then of course with quantity and quality, and you know where the biofuel's been before it comes into your fuel tank, you can basically calculate the emissions abatement and you have assurance around that. What we've learned over the course of the past year in conducting three of these supply chains is that, well, A, not all tracers are created equal, right? Some tracers work better than others. And because the circumstances are different, the fuel is blended with other things that could impact the efficacy of the tracer. So that's very important. And then two, in the specific case of a most recent supply chain where we bunkered a biofuel blend and we replaced the pilot fuel for an LPG propulsion ship. So let me back up. So this is an LPG carrier and it uses LPG for propulsion. But when you use LPG for propulsion, you have a pilot fuel. 
And typically that pilot fuel is some conventional fuel. We replaced that with a biofuel blend and we showed that, you know, through tracing and through analytical tests along the way, we showed that you can actually reduce emissions by 20%. And so 20% emissions reduction would get you to 2030 targets. It feels like we're right at the takeoff stage of this curve when it comes to the use of tracers and biofuels. We're starting to see a trickle through of field studies like the one that Lynn is describing, but we're nowhere near mass adoption yet. We saw that the COVID-19 pandemic accelerated the demand for digital solutions to shipping's efficiency problems. In the same way, with new regulations, there may come a new appetite for a greater, faster creation of biofuels. As the sector's knowledge grows, inevitably, a wider classification range of biofuels has emerged, including using colors to signify different types of the same fuel. I think the sector is realizing that using colors to label these different fuels, it's an okay start. But I think what we need to do is to quantify the carbon intensity on a life cycle basis for these different kinds of fuels. Because like you said, I mean, methanol is methanol, but if you produce it with renewable electrons and you use biogenic carbon, the carbon intensity could be quite low. But if you use natural gas or other feedstocks, and then carbon intensity could actually be quite high. That's true for biomethane and liquefied natural gas too. I mean, from a chemical structure perspective, it looks the same, but it's not because the source is different. And so the carbon intensity is different in these kinds of fuels. So taking a life cycle approach and taking a well to wake as opposed to a tank to wake approach is really important for uh, emissions accounting. Do you think the main factors that are currently stopping the transition to green fuels is, you said supply chain is not transparent, but are there other things stopping us from it? I think it depends on which fuel you're talking about. With biofuels, certainly its use for propulsion is, is proven. So I think the major bottleneck there is the supply chain. It's getting enough of it. And then, of course, cost, right? But if you talk about these new use cases, for example, like ammonia, then there are a whole slew of other bottlenecks, right? Not only do we not have the supply chain, and the suppliers would argue that the demand's not there, but also everything in between the infrastructure infrastructure that needs to be there to support bunkering and using these fuels as a bunker, the safety guidelines, the emergency response protocols, how do we train seafarers so that they can operate and handle these kinds of new fuels safely, right? It goes on and on. So all these need to be ironed out, I would say, before the, the vessels become available and before we use them as a bunker fuel. So there's actually a lot of work to be done between now and then. And you might say, OK, when is then? Maybe the then doesn't happen within this decade. But our survey, the survey that we had done with Boston Consulting Group, uh, has shown that with the front runners, so this, this is the group that's furthest along in their decarbonization journey, when we ask them when they intend to adopt ammonia as a fuel, the mean uh, adoption um, time is 2029, which is within this decade, right? I mean, it's not that many years away. So a lot of things need to be done. And, and that's why we're pushing and we're saying that, you know, we need to start now. So Lynn, tell me a little bit about your ship-to-ship -ship transfer of ammonia. 
Mm. So as you know, Laura, we finished our safety study in April and we shared that at Singapore Maritime Week. And so that had always been our first step. And we are now uh, moving into phase two, which is to conduct pilots involving ship-to-ship transfer of ammonia cargo in port limits. Now, ship-to-ship transfer of ammonia or other chemicals, for that matter, can be done and has been done, but this has always been done outside in open waters. We want to bring that process in port limits because that mimics bunkering conditions. We want to do this before ammonia vessels are available because we think this is an important step in readying the ecosystem so that we can build confidence, uh, we can build familiarity on what it would be like if we were to do ammonia bunkering within port limits. It's really, again, about ironing out emergency response protocols. It's figuring out operational details and using this as a precursor to bunkering pilots when the vessels become ready. Initially, we had focused on one port, but increasingly we're thinking, in addition to doing it at one port, I think it would be important to do it at multiple ports to ready the entire shipping ecosystem for ammonia bunkering. These pilots don't all look the same. They may involve the same operation, but because the local context is very different, these pilots, we're hoping, would address different pain points at these different locations. So take, for example, the ports that we're talking to in Australia, they're not doing bunkering currently there. And so here it's getting up to speed with bunkering first, and then thinking about ammonia, but they're used to handling ammonia. So, you know, their competency in handling ammonia would come in very useful. In Singapore, ship-to-ship transfer happens outside in open waters. It's bringing that operations within port limits because when you do that, it changes the risk portfolio and it's understanding the risk profile of bunkering, which frequently happens in port limits. So it's mimicking that and understanding that so that we can familiarize ourselves and the ecosystem with what one such exercise looks like. And of course, we can only do this in cooperation with the regulators, right? With the port authorities, because this, you know, is done within port limits. The Global Maritime Forum recently published the Operational Efficiency Ambition Statement, outlining five key actions to reduce emissions now and pave the way for the uptake of zero emissions fuels in the future. One of those actions focused on pilots. Piloting programs are a way to progress the green transition. Lynn acknowledges that it's important to conduct fuel pilots in ports as opposed to in open water in order to understand their full supply chain potential. Speaking of experimentation through pilots, GCMD has recently released the results of a widespread industry survey created alongside Boston Consulting Group. The report gives an idea of the industry's investment and opinion on moving towards zero. So, I mean, the report is the output of a very comprehensive survey that we did of the industry. I think we have some sense of where the industry is, but I thought it would be really important to measure the state of decarbonization of the industry. And so we surveyed 128 ship owners and operators across different geographies, across different fleet segments and fleet sizes. And as we know, um, 
shipping is tremendously heterogeneous. And so we wanted to make sure that this survey is actually representative of the industry. So we made sure that we also heard from the small and medium enterprises. So these smaller ship owners, right? We know that 60% of the ships that are on water today are owned by owners that have less than 20 ships in their fleet. And in fact, the average ship owner owns four and a half ships or something like this. And so it's really important to get their voice in there too. What we found through the survey that actually, in hindsight, it shouldn't be surprising. It was the fact that shipping is very, very heterogeneous. Not only is it heterogeneous in terms of the composition, ship type, the routes they ply, it's also heterogeneous in how far along shipping companies are in their decarbonization journey as measured by the extent of technical and operational levers that they've adopted. That's how we came up with the three archetypes. We didn't coin front runners, followers, and conservatives. These are the archetypes that are used to describe um, innovation adoption, if you will. And so we use the same framework to look at our data. And basically with the front runners, they are the ones that are furthest along in their decarbonization journey. They're the ones that are most willing to invest to look at decarbonization. So as a consequence, not only have they adopted the mature and established technical and operational measures, they've also tried the nascent ones, right? And then followers also think decarbonization is very important, but the return on investment is important. So they focus on the immediate term. They're called followers in that respect. And then conservatives, they're the ones that are really early on in their decarbonization journey. And so even the most established operational and technical measures have not been adopted. What we've identified as the bottleneck is not having familiarity with the different technologies and not having sufficient contextualization of the different technologies that are out there. I was very hopeful reading this report to see that 60% of respondents are actually developing decarbonization roadmaps and Mm. three quarters plan on increasing their investment in green initiatives. So at least things are happening. Yes. Several years ago, things weren't happening. Why do you think things are actually moving now? If we think about regulation, I suppose there's the CII that's coming down the pike. There's the EU ETS that's coming down the pike, I guess. So while there's not 100% certainty, if you're a ship owner, a ship operator, I think you can sort of see the vector, right? You can see where things are headed. And then most recently, of course, in July with the MEPC 80 that raised the decarbonization targets, not only the end goal, but also the interim indicative targets, it's given ship owners and ship operators a a little more confidence in what's to come down the pike. So that's the stick. I think having a carrot is important. And so we need to make sure that that's there, right? Large scale surveys like these are fascinating and the results are promising. It shows that enterprises in our industry are actively thinking about how to initiate and drive their own green transition. The next step is to activate industry players regardless of their size and resources to take advantage of greener technologies, initiatives, and practices. The last GCMD initiative we're going to talk about is Project Remarkable. It's the world's first project to demonstrate end-to-end shipboard carbon capture at scale. 
Maybe I should start by giving you some statistics on why we think shipboard carbon capture is important, right? Because I think from a land perspective, carbon capture is an expensive endeavor. And then to then talk about putting it on ship, there's no economies of scale. So people would just look at this and say, well, why in the world would you want to do that? Why would you want to put a chemical factory on a ship? So a couple of interesting statistics, right? Man Engine has projected in their report that by... 2030, 80% of their engine would still be on fossil fuel. By 2050, about 30% of their engine would still be on fossil fuel. Now, man engine has 85% of the market share of two-stroke engines. So these are the international shipping, deep ocean going vessels, right? So fossil fuel is sticky and it's here to stay for quite a bit. When we did our survey, the other thing that's interesting is that when we asked our survey respondents when they would retrofit for future fuels across different segments, the response has been pretty uniform across different segments. And basically, our respondents told us that if their ships are more than 10 years old, they're unlikely to retrofit it for future fuels. If you now take that information and you overlay it on the age distribution of the vessels that are on the water today, this means then two-thirds, Laura, two-thirds of the vessels that are on the water today will not see a single drop of future fuels. Then we can ask, what are the options out there, right? And that's why it's important to look at shipboard carbon capture. And then if you factor in how challenging it is to get these new use case uh, future fuels involved, I think that's why there's a sudden surge in interest in shipboard carbon capture. Hmm. So now back to Project Remarkable. What is it? So Project Remarkable is a pilot to demonstrate that we can do shipboard carbon capture on an MR tanker, and we chose an MR tanker because similar sized vessels contribute about 17% of shipping's emissions. So if we can demonstrate that this can work on a, an MR tanker, then it's a big slice of the pie, in our opinion. There are various capture technologies out there. Because our mandate is to share openly and publicly, we've chosen a non-proprietary technology uh, and a liquid amine to do the capture. And we don't want to just stop at capture because there are now numerous pilots out there that have demonstrated that you can do shipboard carbon capture. The challenges, in our opinion, is really what happens to that captured CO2 because the last thing you want is to capture it and then release it back into the atmosphere. So we need to find ways to either liquefy it and then store it on board or something. You need to do something until you get to the port of call. But then once you get to the port of call, what do you do? How do you offload it? Guidelines don't exist to offload it, right? And then even after you've offloaded, what are you going to do with it? That fate of that CO2 is really, really important. So this pilot... Um, We call it an end-to-end pilot because it really focuses on that fate of that CO2, right? Whether it's being off-taken and then used as a feedstock for something else, or that it's then aggregated and then sequestered somewhere else, I think those are really, really important discussions to be had. And so those are all part of the scope of Project Remarkable. I think it's super exciting, all of the projects you have going on. And certainly for me, these are the things that are helping us to navigate to zero. But 
let's wrap it up with maybe some reflections or, or insight for you about the future and what will get us to zero. If I look at your report, you guys have like five key actions that stand out that we need to do. Are, are those the ones that you believe we need to get to or are there others? I think it depends on how many wishes you give me, right? <laughs> if you're saying, okay, you only have one thing you can do, then I would say the important thing is act now, right? I think we need to take action now. And so what are the things we can do now to do? It's, it's to adopt biofuels. It's to look at how we can be more fuel efficient because fuel savings is not only important for today because of carbon emissions, it's going to be even more important in the future because whether we're going to methanol or ammonia, these are substantially lower in energy density. The more efficient we are, the less we need to use. And that means a smaller fuel tank or a less frequent bunkering. So all of those are aligned and they're better for our pockets. So act now. That's the most important thing. And then we need to have a line of sight to the future fuels. Future fuels aren't just going to come in magically and then replace the fuels that we use today. There's a lot of work that needs to be done between now and then so that the ecosystem is ready for us to use the future fuels. Supply chains need to be established. Infrastructure needs to be built. We need guidelines. We need technical references. We need to figure out safety. We need to upskill and train seafarers and operators. All those can be done in the interim. And that's why we're working so hard on this ammonia transfer pilots, because we believe this is one key step and one step along the way in building that ecosystem readiness for when the fuels are available and when the vessels are here. And I think there's one more that you mentioned, which I thought was really imperative, which is the innovation and finance mechanisms to kind of de-risk the adoption of less mature levers. Of course. That's why I asked you, how many wishes are you giving me? <laughs> I'm giving them all. Okay. So Lynn, what makes you hopeful for the future that we will get to zero? I mean, there's no question decarbonization is hard. Increasingly, we're realizing this. What makes me hopeful is how we're all rallying together and we're headed in the same direction. What makes me hopeful is looking at our partners at GCMD and how they are all so eager to participate and join in our pilots and our trials. What makes me so hopeful is how our partners are willing to teach us what we don't know because that makes our scoping of the problem statements more robust and more resilient and more applicable to the sector. And so it's been an incredible two years since our founding. We now have more than 100 partners that we work with. And it's really, we're standing on the shoulders of giants, essentially. Pilots and tests are impactful and help sculpt future solutions. Meeting the industry where it is on its journey towards zero is critical. Lynn has been very impactful, despite being a relative newcomer in our industry. This illustrates how each person can make a difference, as well as the need for people from outside the industry to help us solve our challenges. They bring their knowledge and experience, which helps them to see solutions with fresh eyes. My key takeaways from my conversation with Lynn are, 
When surveyed, many players in the industry cite the lack of transparency in the fuel supply chain as the key reason they are hesitant about the mass adoption of biofuels. This points to a wider problem, that the port infrastructure just isn't there yet globally to be able to facilitate the transition to future fuels. Our industry is fragmented and so varied. However, it's promising to see that organizations of all sizes are starting to think about or invest in their own green transition. We're still a long way from the mass adoption of green fuels and having a robust form of carbon capture and storage. We need to keep piloting and testing. If you're going to take anything away from this podcast, remember this. The supply chain will need an overhaul and increased transparency to enable the wide adoption of green fuels. The mindset of the industry looks like it's changing. And we're not there yet with future fuels and carbon capture. We need to keep piloting and testing what's possible. These three things will enable the green transition and help us to face the ever-changing challenges in this exciting and dynamic industry. Thank you so much to Lin Liu for joining me today. And thank you for listening to Navigating Zero, Global Trade's powerful wave of change. We're going to be taking a break over the holiday season and we'll return with a new episode on January 8th, 2024. If this conversation has inspired you, then please follow us on your podcast app of choice for more fascinating discussions on how we reach zero. Bye for now.